Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. It's Thursday, August 5th, 2010, and our special guest tonight is Milton Chen, the author of Education Nation. Welcome, Milton. Thanks, Steve. Hope you can all hear me all right. You're coming through perfectly. Looks like you might be in Berkeley. I was thinking you were in San Francisco, but are you at work or somewhere? I'm actually at the offices of Connect Ed, which is an Irvine Foundation funded initiative to really reinvent uh, high school with uh, redesigned curricula, much more project-based, and giving students uh, a workplace experience along certain pathways, multiple pathways, or linked learning as they're called, around fields that California has been central to, such as biotechnology, uh, entertainment, finance. So we're trying to give kids an earlier experience with uh, the professions that they might actually want to consider working in. Oh, very good. And they are described in the book, I believe, in the yes. curriculum chapter. So uh, Future of Education is sponsored by my employer, Illuminate, and the LearnCentral.org social network for educators that has Illuminate baked in. We encourage you to come and give it a spin. Uh, we also want to make sure that you're aware of our Global Education Conference in November. This is uh, five days, multiple time zones, multiple languages, multiple tracks, and all for free. It should be very fun. We're ready to uh, start doing some, some fun announcements this coming week. Now that, the, uh, now that Illuminate has actually been acquired by Blackboard and we have the full go-ahead for me to keep working on the project. Uh, also, by coincidence, because this, there's a mention of uh, the need for Declaration of Education in the book, but uh, earlier this week I started an experiment called Education Declarations. It's educationdeclarations.org, and it's an attempt to have you tell us what you passionately care about in education. So educationdeclarations.org, come and vote. I think there are some 1,000 votes so far. Lots of fun ideas to talk about. Coming up on the Future of Education next week, Charles Fidel talks to us about the neuroscience of learning. Charles has been a good regular guest from Cisco. David Wood, a name most people aren't going to be familiar with, but uh, he's going to talk about getting paid for who you are and the whole idea of personal branding. And we'll talk about how that relates to students, entrepreneurism, and education. Then next week, Linda Darling Hammond from Stanford, as well as Carol Dweck from Stanford, our Stanford week, uh, both speaking. Um, week after next. Uh, Kathleen Cushman on Fires of the Mind. And we're going to look at the BYU-Idaho learning model that Anya Kamenetz discussed in uh, DIYU and George Siemens. The Giabellis on their movie Race to Nowhere at the end of August. And lots more fun coming up. So we hope you'll find something there that's worth your time. If you've missed the session, they are recorded and those recordings are up. Uh, I forgot to put uh, the, the recording from last night, which was Lifelike Pedagogy with uh, Marcelo Rodriguez from Brazil, but that's up as well. And uh, all of these other fun recordings are at futureofeducation.com if you've missed the show. And tonight's recording will go up uh, a little bit later in the evening, but will be available in for sure by tomorrow morning. If this is your first time at Illuminate, it is a participative environment. I know that Milton wants you to ask questions, uh, comment. Uh, you will be able to do so there in a, through a variety of means. At the bottom of your participant window, you'll see some emoticons, a smiling face, a clapping hand, 
thumbs down, a confused look. Those are ways of expressing your emotions at the moment. Yes, lots of clapping, I'm sure. The larger icon of the hand with the green up arrow is a way for you to raise your hand to take the microphone. If you think you'd like to take the microphone, do be sure to go up to Tools, Audio, and run the Audio Setup Wizard to make sure your mic is working before you do so. Um, I also recommend right now that everybody go up to View Layouts and switch to the Wide Layout. It's much easier to see the chat that way and you'll have a better experience. And now I am going to give you permissions to modify this map. So to the left of the map, look for a laser pointer. It's a wand with a star, a red star at the end. Click on that and then click on the map. Some of you have been shouting out where you're from and we're listening from and what the weather is like. Cold in Australia, hot and humid in Maine. Feel free to continue to do that. It's fun to know where others are listening from. Very North America-centric crowd, although we do have Australia. It looks like Hawaii and maybe Japan. Canada, Alaska. Again, wherever you're listening from, we are sure glad that you've chosen to spend some time here tonight. Thank you for doing so. And Milton, thank you for being here. No, thank you, Steve, for inviting me to be part of it. This is really fun. Um, I have a question before we start. Uh, NBC just announced this big education nation uh, deal in September, uh, and I and I thought that the, the coincidence of the name was striking. Have they reached out to you at all? Is are you involved <laughs> in that event? Yeah, how about that? Uh, good case of great minds thinking alike. Uh, yeah, so they've used the Education Nation uh, title as the title for their summit and their expanded coverage of education this fall. So yes, we have been in touch with them. There's a uh, conference that I'll be at, uh, that I understand Secretary Duncan and others will be at in New York City, uh, I think it's September 27th, 28th, at last uh, Monday and Tuesday in New York. So I'm sure much more information coming from NBC as we uh, move into the school year about this, this campaign. I'm really glad. Okay, so you have some slides prepared for those who haven't read the book, and I think it's worth going through them. Maybe you could tell a little bit about yourself as you begin those slides. We are figuring that's going to take about 15 minutes, then I have some, some questions for you from, from the book, and we'll move quickly into Q&A. So shall we begin? Great. Uh, and thank you all for, for tuning in today. I see we have about 53 folks, and uh, thank you for especially doing that uh, during the dog days of August. and. Uh, everyone taking a few weeks off to get ready for the uh, school year. Um, so I think I can just click on these slides by, uh, yeah. Um, for those of you who, who aren't familiar with our work at Edutopia, I, I would hope that most of you are, but just very quickly at the George Lucas Educational Foundation, we're based in the San Francisco Bay Area. We have been doing this work of trying to document the best, most innovative schools and classrooms, learning environments, uh, especially using project-based learning, integrating technology in exciting ways. We've been doing this work for well, close to 20 years. We'll turn 20 next year. And uh, really during the past couple of years, we've seen an incredible um, upsurge in innovation in schools as technology has gotten better and better and cheaper and cheaper. So we have published a number of books, uh, in fact, the most recently with Josie Bass, uh, to, for instance, uh, document uh, the outcomes of, of project-based learning and cooperative learning. That's a book called Powerful Learning that Linda Darling-Hammond, who will be with you all uh, through this Future of Education webinar in uh, just about 10 days, I think. 
And then, so that came out a couple of years ago, and uh, my book is called Education Nation, and it is my effort to curate a, a kind of best of collection of Edutopia in book form, uh, so that uh, if someone asks me, what are the 30 or 40 things that you'd like me to look at for this new view of, of teaching and learning, what would they be? So there they are in, in that book. And um, it just came out in July, so I've been doing a number of book talks, and uh, I called it Education Nation because it is my belief that all of the important issues of our time come down to education. And wouldn't it be great, as the slide says, if, if we realized that uh, a strong economy, high employment, national security, everything that's on the, you know, the front pages of our, of our headlines, um, wouldn't it be great if education uh, was as high a priority? Because all those issues come down to education. Uh, wouldn't it be great if we had this ladder of learning from pre-K through gray involving both formal and informal education? taking advantage of technology, and also what these other resources in the community, such as museums and libraries, youth groups, parks, churches, are all doing things to help educate our young people. Wouldn't it be great if, if these activities had a much higher profile uh, for, for our nation? Uh, I don't think we'll get to become an education nation unless we really do invest more in education, but it really does start with a greater understanding of the importance of education. I was in Florida just a couple weeks ago. Uh, at the Florida Teachers of the Year conference. More than 60 uh, district uh, teachers of the year in Florida who were gathered to be honored in a great celebration. Uh, they do a lot more to honor their teachers of the year. I hope some of you are from Florida and may, may have uh, seen some of this. Um, they take them to a black tie gala at uh, Hard Rock Live at Universal Studios. The state superintendent comes out. There's corporate support. But that same day, uh, LeBron James announced uh, in all the media build-up that he was going to the Miami Heat. So there you have it, the media attention, the national attention focused on LeBron James and barely a blip on the media radar as far as who the best teachers of the year were. So until we show uh, that teachers deserve the same kind of attention as our best athletes, uh, I don't think we'll get there and we're a long ways from that. Uh, I'll just quickly run through these slides because I, I know that many of you are familiar with uh, the recurring drumbeat about where we are as an education nation, the fact that we are still not uh, getting kids to fourth grade reading level, which continues to be the, the first hurdle that they need to get to. Uh, we're still using a lot of older media and teaching instruction for getting kids to fourth grade reading level, but now we have a lot of new ways of doing that. I'll talk a bit about that. Uh, the dropout rate continues. Um, so I think we can all stipulate to the fact that we have a lot to do to, to become an education nation. And the fact that there are now much more innovative ways of teaching kids during school and outside of school, but the kinds of projects I'll talk about need to be a, a must-do rather than a nice-to-know. And for many years, um, the kinds of stories I've talked about it, uh, that have been featured at Edutopia, people have kind of nodded their heads and say, well, that's great, that's interesting that, uh, you know, 10 years ago kids in San Diego had a way of video conferencing with scientists. Uh, good for them. But now these ideas need to become much more common. They need to get to scale. Uh, so I'm, I'm very interested in how some of these ideas that uh, I talk about and that really all of you are working on. I know some of you who are on on this uh, webinar are doing great work to bring innovation to scale. Um, sometimes people have asked me, what, how do you define what Edutopia's agenda is? And we certainly have our core 
topics and strategies on our website related to project-based learning and technology and uh, cooperative learning and uh, community involvement. Uh, but I do like to boil it down to just four words and an equal sign that a school life could become more like real life, as John Dewey has said from going back more than 100 years ago. We were beginning to separate kids' uh, own learning in schools from what they knew in their own lives. If it could bring uh, school life to become more like real life and enable kids to bring what they know from their own lives outside of school into the school, uh, that would go a long ways towards making learning much more authentic. In the book, I talk about six leading edges of innovation, and I use um, a concept from John Seeley Brown and John Hagel where they talk about industries and sectors really paying more attention to what's on the edges of their businesses and their sectors because that's where the innovation is. Uh, they talk about the edges of, of geography, maybe looking at, uh, at Asia, what's going on in China and India with your users, looking at some of your younger users and how they're using some of your products and services. So I named six leading edges of, of K-12 innovation in the book. Um, and there you see them thinking. Uh, the second edge is uh, changes to curriculum assessment, very different from the current focus on, on even um, improving curriculum uh, and assessment. Uh, certainly technology is doing a lot to change the way in which uh, teaching and learning happens. The fourth edge of time and place I find very interesting now that uh, kids can be learning 24-7. Uh, it's August 5th. Do you know where your children are? Uh, they could be involved in very powerful learning. Uh, some of them are, but uh, our, our kids take a very long three-month vacation and our educators uh, are not in touch with them. So can we find ways to give every kid the same kind of learning advantage that, that wealthier kids get because their parents can afford to pay for them to go to camp or to travel or to uh, have technology? That fifth edge is the co-teaching edge, uh, which I view as an effort to really expand the teaching team that supports kids beyond individual teachers. And again, there's so much going on to have kids mentored by other experts, have them make community uh, connections. So that's the co-teaching edge. And then the youth edge is really the largest edge, uh, the kids who are in our schools today, and taking better advantage of what they know and what they can do and bringing them into the teaching and learning uh, process and not just having them act as, as the traditional definition of students there to receive knowledge from teachers. Uh, these are a couple slides from our Digital Generation Project, which really make the point about this edge of our youth and how they're doing all sorts of amazing things with digital technologies. Uh, we profiled 10 uh, youth from around the country, ages 9 to 18, and you'll see them at uh, edutopia.org slash digital hyphen generation. Uh, in the book, I, I selected two of them. One is Virginia, who's 14, from a small town in, in Georgia and uh, also Luis uh, from Camilla, sorry, from, from Oregon, from Cornelius, Oregon. Virginia is from Camilla, Georgia. Uh, but both of them from more rural towns uh, doing amazing things. In Luis's case, uh, using geographic information systems uh, and mobile devices to do a, a tree inventory for his city as part of a, a project through uh, the 4-H uh, Tech Wizards program. So a good example of how Kids can be forming, forming these learning partnerships. Teachers can as well with nonprofits 
who can provide these, provide these opportunities for kids outside of school as well. Taking more advantage of what kids have in terms of their learning time after school, beyond school, uh, during the afternoons, evenings, weekends, and summers. So these slides will walk you through uh, some of those, uh, some more detail on those edges. Uh, I say that it's about time to bury the education wars. We've had a lot of them, and they continue to prevent us making progress. But usually these, these armed camps have, both have something useful to say. Um, you know, it's not phonics versus whole language and reading. It's, it's, of course, both. It's not arts versus the core curriculum. There are ways in which the arts can be integrated across the core curriculum. And it's not learning in nature versus technology. Uh, it's really using technology to help kids learn about nature. Uh, I'm a, a technology advocate, but I'll be the first to say that I think kids spend too much time with technology. If you look at the figures from the, the Kaiser uh, Foundation study, kids are spending on average seven hours a day, more than seven hours a day with digital media. Uh, they're multitasking more than 10 hours on average into seven hours of use. So I am one who's, who believes that we ought to be giving kids different kinds of experiences and summer is often a time when kids get into nature, but they can still use uh, educational technology, learning technologies to study and learn from nature. You know, once kids are into collecting data about nature, once they're into doing digital photography, using GIS, that's a great way to combine uh, learning in nature with technology. Um, that second edge I talk about in terms of uh, the curriculum edge, you know, one example, I'll just take one example, is the uh, integration of social and emotional learning with the uh, academic core courses. Uh, this is, again, a, an understanding that not enough educators and certainly enough school board members and policymakers have about the importance of kids understanding themselves and being able to communicate with each other. Uh, this, this SEL curriculum is an important piece of the curriculum, but often it's viewed as, as an extra and something that I know a number of educators have looked at that and say, well, we, we don't have time for another innovation, another a professional development on, on Project X. Uh, the plate's already full, but as Roger Weisberg, the head of the Collaborative for Academic, Social, and Emotional Learning says, this isn't another addition to the plate. It is the plate. It is the foundation on which academic learning is built, uh, but we haven't yet fully recognized that. I know a number of you are involved with, with globalizing the curriculum. I know Mike Searson is on from King University, a real leader in, in helping teachers understand how to globalize the curriculum, that every subject area has, a, has global aspects and dimensions. Um, bil bilingual education for all, I think it's about time that we started to say, we, learning a second language uh, for all American kids is important to their, uh, their global perspective. Um, we tended to view this as, a, again, a, a special topic for some students, but we need to find ways to, starting at the very early ages, uh, educate kids in a second language. Often in many states, we do not allow kids to use their native language, if it's not English, in their own learning at the elementary school, but um, many high schools require a second language. So there you have it. We just start too late with this whole process. Walter Payton College Prep is, is a good example of, a, of not an either or, but a both and kind of school. I like their, their motto. They're a math, science, and world language academy. Uh, they do all those things. You don't have to be a STEM academy. 
You can also be a World Language and World Culture Academy. So we've done a film about them uh, at edutopia.org, and you can take a look at how they're doing a variety of these things um, at the Walter Payton. I think this group is pretty familiar with the, the potential technology. I'll just give you one example, because I know we want to move on to some conversation. But it's the use of the iPod for teaching of reading. Um, most people look at the iPod as a device that's revolutionized how we listen to and share music. But this, uh, this device can be used as a great tool for the teaching of reading, getting kids to that fourth grade reading level that's the first critical filter. Uh, this is a project if you look at iRead or Google iRead online. You'll see how uh, two technology directors in Canby, Oregon and in Escondido, California uh, have used the iPod, especially the iPod Touch with the Internet access, to help kids really use the iPod as a mirror for their own reading. I don't think we think enough about that, that technology is very flexible and can do a lot of different things. But what kids need most is a mirror for their own performance. There are lots of ways in which we're using student portfolios and other things to help kids document their own learning. But the iPod, through attaching a, a microphone and having kids listen to themselves read, compare their reading to their teachers, to have parents be able to listen to their kids' reading, to have kids be able to listen to each other's reading and engage in some peer teaching, these are things that, that the iPod enables. So I encourage you to take a look at that. A project. It's uh, only about three years old, but one of the more innovative uses of technology and a special mobile technology to address uh, that fourth grade reading hurdle. At edutopia.org, we've embarked on a series of bi-monthly schools that work, where we are taking schools and increasingly school systems and really showing how they work in greater detail. Most of you may be familiar with our single documentary and article and additional resources about individual schools. But based on user feedback, we are trying to go deeper. So at the Schools That Work um, feature, you'll see not just eight minutes of documentary, but 30 minutes or 45 minutes of documentary footage of schools and interviews with their principals, their teachers, their parents, and their students to really help uncover more of how they do what they do. That's, that's the thing that people have been asking us for, um, more detail, more how-to. So we call this moving from the what uh, to the how. Now there's a slide from the iRead project that EUSD is Escondido Unified School District just north of San Diego. So the time place edge is, is again, trying to take advantage of all the time and all the places where kids can learn. Uh, one of my, and this is not necessarily a new idea, one of my favorite uh, publications is the U.S. Department of Education publication called Prisoners of Time, done during the Clinton administration that shows you how old it is. So even back then, we were looking at the school schedule, uh, the school bell, and how we were limited in where and how kids learn. So I like that, that report. It's, it's one of the more clever uh, U.S. Department of Education reports. You don't often hear people say that there's a clever, humorous U.S. Department of Education report, but it is a report that has a sense of humor in talking about really trying to free up the school schedule and kids and teachers as prisoners of time. I was part of a Mott Foundation commission that tried to take those ideas forward from the Prisoners of Time report. 
our report is called A New Day for Learning. Edutopia.org has done a number of films about uh, school districts and after-school partnerships where they're creating a new day, not only within the school day, but again across the week and across the year. And in that book I talk about uh, school gardens as an important place where kids can learn. Uh, of course, there's great value in taking kids to other places in their communities. Uh, that raises issues of transportation and cost. But why not start with other kinds of learning places at the school site? And so much can be learned from having a school garden uh, from elementary age kids all the way through middle schools and into high schools. Uh, one of my favorite projects there is the Edible Schoolyard here in Berkeley uh, by uh, organic chef Alice Waters. If you go to edibleschoolyard.org, you'll see it, and also at edutopia.org, we've done a film about the edible schoolyard. So I've talked a bit about the, the co-teaching edge, uh, just to reiterate that you want to create a, a teaching team uh, that incorporates uh, parents, uh, local experts, online experts, linking home and school, and there I think technology has a tremendous role to play some of these school home communication platforms that enable parents as, as the first and most important teachers or co-teachers or co-educators for their kids to understand more of what happens during the school day so that parents never ask, have to ask their kids, you know, do you have any homework? They know based on the, the communication between the home and the school using these, these platforms what exactly is required. So again, technology has a role to play there. And, um, many experts are involved in, in helping the project-based learning process in schools, and we've done a film about aviation high school where Boeing engineers work with teachers to redesign the curriculum and help give kids uh, a much more powerful experience as far as understanding aerospace, and the project that we profiled was um, the design of an airplane wing. I'm also glad I'm, I just happen to be here in Berkeley, California, because um, this is the home of Dennis Harper. I don't know if Dennis and folks from Generation Yes are here, uh, but Generation Yes is one of the great projects that has given kids a role as a teaching assistant to their teachers. I don't think we'll make progress uh, just by asking teachers alone to become proficient in the use of technology. Uh, they're sitting there with 95% of the stakeholders in education, and they are the students themselves, as Dennis likes to say. Dennis got schooled in education reform and revolution here at Berkeley and uh, has been doing great work uh, in Olympia, Washington. Generation Yes is one of the few uh, Department of Education Technology Challenge grants that continues uh, to this day because of this success with helping kids understand how to act as teaching assistants around technology to their teachers. And there's that slide of Luis from Cornelius, Oregon. And hopefully this digital generation profile that we have done will be useful in, in your upcoming faculty meetings as, as you want to understand and share what kids can really do. Uh, these are kids that were selected from around the country, but they're not that exemplary in terms of what kids are doing. Uh, yes, they're doing interesting things. We certainly tilted the coverage to show the variety of interesting things that kids are doing with digital media, but there are kids in every community who are doing this. So uh, if you take a look at that digital generation um, set of profiles on edutopia.org. Um, please take a look at what Luis and Virginia and many others are doing. Great. Uh, so I see there's a very active uh, thread there of comments from different folks. And the Julie Evans has just posted something. 
and uh, glad to have uh, some discussion around these topics. So I'm going to start us with some questions, Milton. Uh, I sure love the book, and I love the idea of looking at the edges of innovation. And I know that the genesis of that came largely from the John C. Brown um, material, not the Clayton Christensen's or disruptive edges. But for me, there was a tension in the book, and a very interesting tension, because it felt as though the reason that those examples existed and were so good was because they were on the edges. And the tension for me was this idea that somehow those edges will move to the center and how difficult that is. And that, um, that it's very hard to get institutions to actually polish their glasses and be watching the periphery and to proactively, even really good institutions, to, to make changes to move toward those edges. So do you feel that same tension? Uh, in the examples and the difficulty of getting them to inform the center? Yes, clearly that, that is the big fundamental challenge uh, of innovation at the edges and moving it towards the center. There's a tremendous amount of resistance. There has been, certainly, I would say during the past 15 years, let's put it that way. But I, my sense is that we're at, a, at an inflection point, partly fueled by the progress we've made with technology. Um, technology does show a way of doing things better and better, faster and faster, and cheaper and cheaper. That's the story of technology in the workplace and globally, and now we are seeing that coming to schools and to education, where cost has been a main factor, but still changing our thinking, that first edge that the Florida Teachers of the Year says was the most difficult and challenging edge. So I, I do think we're going to make more progress on bringing more of these edges to the center during the next four or five years than we have during the past 10. I do feel that there's this, this, this groundswell, this upsurge of, of interest in more innovative practice. Uh, we've certainly seen that in Edutopia just in the past two years, I'll put it that way. And um, so I'm hopeful. I'm a long-term optimist, as we like to say. But it does take both top-down and bottom-up change and innovation. Well, and you do a very good job, I think, in the book of staying on the positive side, of, of saying we're going to be positive, we're going to look for synthesis. But there are a couple of clues uh, throughout the book. Um, one was uh, you quote um, Cameron McCune, who says, evolutionary change will not work at this point. We need a major revolution in education. And, and in another place, I think you may even use that same word yourself. Um, being an optimist, being interested in synthesis, do you feel, though, that, that there is a portion of this that will only take place if there is a revolution? Um, well, it depends on your definition of revolution. Um, revolutions don't happen overnight either. And I think history tells us that uh, even a revolution, and the groundwork has to be laid. Uh, so I am hopeful that you know if we have this conversation sometime 2012, it will have seen much more substantial change happen. Uh, that's the problem, and I think one of the real issues with us is, is having so many school boards and local control here. Uh, we can have even governors who want to make this change, but it, uh, a lot of the funding and resources for schools 
happens at the local level. So it, it really have to go school district by school district and school by school. This is an understanding that George Lucas uh, learned as well when he understood how things happen. Would that we had a national ministry of education as, as many nations do and they're able to exert more influence at the national level. So it'll take us a, a good long time. But to that, to that point, Steve, it would be great if we had more local hotbeds of innovation and more superintendents locally and school boards that said we want to do something very different. Uh, we've had some school districts uh, that have moved towards that. Uh, the story about Cameron McCune and his work in Fullerton, California is one of them. But um, we need many more superintendents and school boards to, to understand the change that's needed and to try to make that change more quickly. Okay, so help me kind of suss that out a little because I, I heard two messages in that statement that I can't fully reconcile. One of which is it seems to me that some of these great examples exist because at a local level somebody did something independent and yet you seem to be calling for a more nationalized system and, and those to me seem to be almost a little bit in opposition. Well, I think we need national leadership and resources and uh, I think it helps a lot when from the President through the Secretary of Education they are all saying we need something very different, that our school system is not working, we need to reform it, if you want to use that word, or we need to reinvent it. But they know better than anybody that this change has to happen at the local level. But I think to have the national conversation happening, to have some of the resources that are coming through now, uh, through the stimulus funds, race to the top, the innovation fund, that's all very helpful, but it's going to go away in a matter of months and few years. So we do need states and districts to pick up uh, where that leaves them. So for instance, I think if more governors and state boards would say today in the year 2010, we do believe now that giving every student access to the Internet through mobile devices is important, an important ingredient in what a 21st century school district should be, that would help a lot. But the story of what's happened in Maine and the and Angus King as governor there, uh, that's an object lesson where they encountered a lot of resistance and fought that resistance over many years. I think they're going on eight or nine years of implementation and they're still the only state. So I wish that more governors would learn from what uh, Governor King has done in Maine and, and be willing to bet more of their political capital on this. And it is a question for many elected officials of betting their political capital on this and being willing to take the heat to make this change. Boy, it sure feels like that uh, is a, a hugely difficult circumstance because more and more it feels like, um, you know, with high stakes testing that there are mandates and measurements that are centralized that will stop people from taking risks and yet the expectation would be we want them to take risks and do things differently because we need that activity on the edge to to be able to spread. But it feels a little bit like a dilemma. It is. And I, and, um, I will say that a key piece of this that doesn't get often talked about enough is, is the assessment, changing the assessment systems. Because when all we have are these off-the-shelf standardized tests, then yes, if that's the measure of learning, it's going to be difficult to make this change. But once we get some better assessment systems in place and you see a lot of activity, and again, this is the role of the federal government 
to help fund some of this assessment work and research into assessment, um, then I think this change will happen more quickly. So what do you think, um, if I'm in a, in a state system or I'm in a local school system and I'm seeing really positive things happening in other places like big picture schools, what stops me, what are the typical barriers that to change? Um, it's, there was a little bit of irony to me that you quoted John Dewey so early on because it felt as though um, that almost indicated that uh, good messages are hard to, to move the system. And so what is it that makes it difficult for people to actually make changes when they see something that they really like? Do you have a sense of the dynamic that takes place locally? Well, you know, the first question that people often ask people with policy and decision-making authority, I, I don't think it's so much that they're steeped in the old ways of doing things, but the first question they rightfully ask is, does it work? What's the evidence that this new way of teaching and learning, more project-based, more authentic kind of learning, does it actually result in, in learning outcomes? And there we still have a, a, a lot of work to do to document the kind of learning that, that goes on. We need new forms of assessment. We need new research methodologies to show this. And there again, we have underinvestment, underinvested in assessment and in trying to show at scale how kids are learning from these, these new teaching methods. So that's a fair question when they ask that and we've got to do a lot more to document that it does work and how it works. Uh, we try to do some of this at edutopia.org. Um, you can go to our website and see the, uh, the Knowledge in Action project that we have helped to fund where we redesigned an AP course in American government and politics and for project-based, and there you have the standardized test, and you have these measures of deeper learning. This is a, a grant that we made to the University of Washington and to John Bransford. So we, three years ago, tried to be part of this movement to, to redesign curriculum and show that kids could do better on the test and on these deeper measures. But it's, there aren't many projects that are doing that. Uh, hopefully, again, for the, uh, the I3 grants that are going out, we just announced there will be more of this. Um, so again, the um, the assessment and the evaluation of this kind of learning still has a fair ways to go. So one of the things I really loved about the book were all the stories. And uh, those who are regular listeners to the show know I've been kind of thinking about this a lot lately. But one of the interesting dynamics I see taking place is that we have a, we had a story of education that no longer really works for us, the kind of top-down compliance factory model schooling. And it feels often that we're trying to replace that story with another single story, when what your book does so brilliantly is to show that there are a lot of really different ways of accomplishing good education. Do we need to be trying to make it a one-size-fit-all, or is there value in actually having coming to a, a better national story that allows for diversity? Oh, I like the latter approach. I, I think, as you're pointing out, Steve, there are lots of different ways to make this change. And there again, um, locally, teachers, parents, the community, school boards have to come together to really assess what learning resources available in their community. And once they do that kind of um, called a community asset mapping of what's, what is possible to help kids learn in our community, you'll find a lot of different things. 
I like this idea of, of learning locally and thinking globally. Uh, I wish more kids understood the history of, of, of their own communities, of just as I mentioned this in the book, what, what has happened in your community within five miles of where you're sitting? Uh, but often, again, local history has not been part of, of the curriculum. But again, it, it makes it very relevant to kids to know why streets are named with the names they are, what are the learning resources that, have, uh, that are available in that community. But yes, I, I vote for many different paths to get there rather than one size fits all. But I will say that equipping kids with the digital tools to do this is important. Yeah, it's really fun to have your voice in the, uh, as a part of this because we've you know, we heard from Tony Wagner at Harvard where they were doing local building of, of uh, you know um, education systems and and you have these two great questions in the book that you recommend get asked you know what are the characteristics of a of a, a 21st century teacher and what are the characteristics of a 21st century learner I kind of love that direction of uh, really allowing those questions to get asked and answered at a local level because it feels as though that mirrors the same kind of engagement that we're hoping will take place in the classroom but at the administrative sort of uh, teacher level in schools. Yes. Um, again, I think that um, it's important that that we re look at what's available. So I lost Milton's audio as well, and I'm thinking that means his connection dropped, and he should come back. We'll probably hear a chipmunk version of him quickly. Uh, we are going to move to Q&A. I've asked all my questions, uh, and the moment he comes back, we'll hear his voice. And locally, uh, and forming these sorts of partnerships, and um, as I say in the book, uh, it might be a useful activity for faculty at that first uh, meeting in this, this fall to try to write the job description for the 21st century teacher and try to write a, a job description or, or go out to your students and have them write that for the learner uh, and compare that to the kinds of job descriptions that teachers have had, that students have had over the, over the past years. Um, again, I think you'll come up with a lot of very creative ideas. I've seen some teachers do this and uh, and they are also very interested in forming these sorts of teaching partnerships with others to work with other teachers and also yes, to work with other teachers. At least for me, I'm hearing you uh, real time again. But the way Illuminate works is if your connection slowed down, it paused, and then we heard you in kind of a chipmunk voice. <laughs> okay, so well, we heard everything. Uh, so we're going to move to Q&A. Uh, uh, if, if you've asked a question in the chat and we haven't picked up on it, I hope you'll post How it again. How do I do that? Uh, also, at the bottom of the part window, look for the hand with the green up arrow to How's raise your hand. Uh, Milton's anxious to hear from the audience tonight, and so um, this is your chance. Okay, so Scott oh, yeah. asks, to what degree <laughs> does funding influence the changes that we hope will happen? Certainly having the resources to make these changes is important, but again, I think we should look first of all at how is money being spent currently. 
and are the education dollars that we have in our schools and our districts uh, being spent well? So often what I hear is that there are ways of saving money. I'll just give you one example uh, around digital textbooks. Even that phrase, um, we're not really talking about textbooks going digital. We're talking about putting the curriculum uh, resources online. So here in California, there are a number of projects that are trying to do that. And nationally, if we could redirect the dollars we spend on print textbooks towards now, again, what year is it? 2010, where the, the wealth of learning resources available, the wealth of curriculum available for kids online far exceeds what is in the textbook. So the more that school districts will say, yeah, we want to begin to make this change. A number of them are doing that. A number of states considering this. So the government here in California has, has proposed that. Um, redirecting those funds uh, would be great. I understand, and I don't know whether folks are on from Maine, that Maine is saying that the cost of providing every student with a laptop computer, uh, you know, total cost of ownership, hardware, software, staff development, a key piece of it all, and broadband internet access is running at about $250 per student per year. Dramatic price increase, uh, decrease in So you're getting a compliment so from Carol. Okay, and compare uh, that to the saying, cost of one I was just watching the video from Discovery Education. Oh, no, that was the wrong one. She said, just wanted to make so a comment. Hopefully, by redirecting education spending, coming we can to make this change. And yes, I do believe we've got to Gordon invest more. Asks, Certainly, in states such as California, which are below the median for people spending, getting more state dollars and local dollars into education is needed. This is a topic that uh, at Edutopia we care a lot about. We've profiled a number of leading schools of education over the years uh, in our magazine and online. Um, certainly, the, the pipeline of teachers is critical. And getting the right information about these innovations to teachers at the very beginning of their development as teachers, not midstream or, or too late, is important. So. We know of a number of schools of education that are trying to make this change. Uh, we've hosted meetings for deans of schools of education. Um, and again, the, the possibility of doing this in real time online in a much more clinical way rather than having the curriculum in schools of education be so classroom-based, but be more um, So Kevin says, I may have missed it, but what but does based much more think of a common core like of learning professional development school? Uh, I know a number of you involved uh, are teaching at schools of education. I hope Michael Searson at Kane University will weigh in as well about the way in which they're globalizing the teacher education curriculum and giving their student teachers a global experience uh, during their training. If that's a reference to the Common Core Standards, I think that's a good thing. I think uh, you know algebra should not be different in you know, New Mexico from Connecticut. Uh, so I do think that 
the Common Core Standards are a good movement. It's kind of amazing that it's taken us so long to get to it, but it's a good place um, to there, start. There's a little chat and hopefully still going on about the, the standards in place. You talk we will quite then a bit about it in the, the book, key question of a that I recall, right? Both uh, the curriculum in place and the right instructional methods for conveying those those standards and, and there's uh, there was another sort of follow-up getting the right Jim assessment Burke, in place. Um, I can't say that um, often enough. The CCSS stands for Common Core Standards. I'm not sure what that stands for. I should know and I don't. But he says, do large publishing outfits such as Pearson and McGraw-Hill have an inside path? Yes. Um, I'm trying to read some of the uh, some of the comments there. You know, I don't have a, a specific answer to that question in terms of how the, again, the curriculum will be designed to meet with these common core standards, but I will say that there are many, many groups that have created great content and lesson plans and curriculum online, uh, and my hope would be that, that teachers would be able to pick and choose or that there would be models of online curricula that would take the best of what already exists. So again, if you have a question that you'd like because to ask by audio, you can use stuff the online at the National Science Digital Library. We are talking about the questions One of my favorite chat. websites for the teaching um, of American I'm history not, is the I'm Library of Congress. I'm that you mentioned American specifically the chartered school again, I don't know that it's in the book. Have you got any comments about uh, that? Uh, how history is taught, but many innovative history teachers are using it as part of their curriculum. Well, charter schools, uh, the ones that we profiled, have been terrific. Uh, but charter schools are just, you know, a, a policy and legal and financial way of creating a new kind of school. Some of the charter schools have done tremendous work. Others have not. Uh, so again, when you see these studies coming out about do charter schools do better than regular schools, it's kind of a mixed picture. Well, our point of view at, at Edutopia and my own personal point of view is you want to go so around and figure out what are the best places. Is that because it's and out the best of the purview of the work that you do or because a combination of charters and also regular like public um, schools? We think good ideas can come from dialogue. a lot of different places. Uh, good ideas about teaching and learning come from universities, come from preschools, and can come from independent schools as well and can come from abroad. So uh, we like to look in a very broad way uh, at um, best practices and innovation. Uh, similar to charter schools, homeschooling, some parents do a fantastic job with their kids and call on all sorts of resources in their local communities, put their kids in touch with experts uh, in many fields. And then there are parents that, that don't do a very good job. So our point of view is always to take the best of those, those practices and those labels and those categories 
and, and show what they do. Um, I think that's unfortunate, and my goal would be eventually that every child, every parent would have access to a great public school. So Carol's not asking, the case for many uh, why communities and many parents is, is why they tradition. often choose to homeschool their kids. They feel they can do a better job than what their local public school can do. But my hope would be, and this is Edutopia's perspective, the, the future of our nation and the future of our school system uh, rests on creating um, much more um, responsive and innovative public school system. Well, thanks for noticing that. <laughs> we did um, see publication of the magazine uh, with the March-April issue. And it was really our belief, uh, led by our board, that, that the web had matured to a point where the website really is the fuller story. Uh, we had always viewed the magazine, and, and before that, some of the newsletters, the DVDs, the CD-ROMs, and the books that we published as interim media to send people to the website. So the magazine was a great addition to our media publishing for five years and included a lot of links to our site and many other sites. But now we feel, you know, now that people have broadband, we've been watching those figures quite carefully. Um, now people can go right to the website and especially see the films. We've always viewed the documentary films as the leading edge of our work that by capturing what these classrooms look like Bob on film, we can communicate a lot very quickly in ways that goals of the website are about now. how these schools operate and the excitement of what they're doing. So it was really our effort to say, let's really focus on the website. And hopefully you've seen a number of improvements we've made on the website, including our online communities that are forming around a number of topics. So moving from the one-to-many approach of Edutopia publishing these stories to now having many others in the field contribute their own stories. Well, I know Betty Ray has been has been uh, contributing to the the thread, and she she should also weigh in on this. Um, I will say the first challenge has always been helping people find what they're looking for. It's great when people come in and they have more general interest and come to our homepage. There is so much on our website. We have filmed over 150 different, really exciting schools and classrooms. Um, but getting people, you know, the fourth grade teacher has a, has a specific interest usually in, in what other fourth grade classrooms are doing. Uh, the tenth grade so we uh, chemistry have a teacher probably has an interest audience, in what's going on I'll just in the tenth grade. So Gordon asks, the right I'm sorry that he's not read your book yet, but he search. will. And please do buy and, this and book because the right keywords it does really actually mention the classroom more in our back end. That's our challenge to really get that. people quickly to the kind of content that we're looking for. He says, have you heard or seen any movement for a U.S. teacher certificate that is not state licensed, but a new U.S. all-state license standard? What might be the key attribute within that certificate for pre-K-12, pre-K-20, such as effective use of more than the face-to-face -face time teachers have with students?
Well, I guess I have not heard of a movement to nationally certify teachers. I'd be glad to hear more from those who have. Um, so I, I don't have much to contribute on that score. Um, but I am encouraged, again, by the number of states who are trying to move teacher preparation and certification to uh, a much more modern approach. I'll, I'll put it that way. That um, perhaps I'm, you know, I'm too I, much I of a long-term optimist. Like just from I what I'm hearing, sure that um, the um, monitoring some of these conversations going on with school officers and with but, but still folks locally, maybe it's just that I'm living that in my own little bubble, but I'm not around the country. It just may not meet with teachers and principals and school board members. Of course, they're probably a more self-selecting group of folks who are interested in ideas about innovation, but they are in many places around this country. Yes, and I think we haven't pushed hard enough on that. And Steve, I, I do understand your interest in trying to. You yeah, know, it's interesting. I'm not sure I actually feel like I'm a revolutionary revolutions as you know, we much as I'm believing that we're at a point in time historically um, where things are, are changing so dramatically that we are going to see change. And that what, what you're doing and what I hope I'm doing is providing freedom and authority from regulation dialogue individual charter where we can talk about these things and in such a way as to have them be thoughtful more broadly at the district you know, level. Rather than necessarily, you know, a, a shock or a surprise. Um, and and I'm not, not sure I have necessarily a, a specific viewpoint or opinion as much as uh, hoping to provide platforms for people to actually talk about what they would like to see. Jackie says a platform yes, for civil the, disobedience. The that sounds like John Taylor Gatto's Bartleby is plan. Really of concern where okay, so uh, well, again, thanks so much technology. Tonight. Uh, the world that is changing. Really very delightful, and, and I'm uh, super appreciative of it. Thanks to those of you who have attended. Thanks to Illuminate and Learn Central for letting me do this. Around the education Join us next week. So it's an open question, really. How quickly we can catch up? Stanford Week. August 18th and 19th with Linda Darlingham and Carol Dweck. Milton, uh, what's next for you? Well, I'm going to spend the next six months to a year uh, giving talks based on the book. Thank and, you so much. And, again, I recommend engaging with groups for that want to make this change. 
Please uh, go and out again, and buy it. Again, as I go around the country and, and somewhat around the world, people want the country. to not just Hopefully we'll see hear about these innovations. They want to make coming it tonight. Moving from um, the what is it the to the how do we do it. Will be posted later so tonight I find that morning. encouraging. Uh, and I will they be do go up fairly quickly in there at futureofeducation.com. Have a great night, everybody. Thanks, Mel. Thanks for the opportunity, Steve, and thank you all for tuning in today. Thank you.